quick. What did you do yesterday? You have to stop and think about that, right? How about last Wednesday? What did you do then? You remember? You had me to pull out your calendars? How about December 27th, a month ago from today? What did you do then? It's getting harder, right? How about January 27th, 2018? Any ideas? Would any of you stand a chance of remembering what happened, say, on January 27th, five years ago or further back? Here's my point. We are extremely forgetful people. And on each of those days, what you did was probably pretty important to you at the time. But it's amazing how fast memories seem to just evaporate from our brains. And how much harder might it be to remember what did God do for you on those days? Do you remember any answers to prayer? Anything that he spoke to you from his word? Do you remember any special opportunities you may have had to speak about him those days? Now, I'm not suggesting that we should start meticulously keeping track, maybe taking notes every day. Oh, it might not hurt. Remembering specific days is likely unnecessary. But do you remember in general? Do you, do you remember his provision, his teaching, his guidance, his faithfulness? Do you remember those things? I've been struck recently, especially through our study of Deuteronomy, how much God's word tells us to remember. Remember this, remember that. And how much the, the health of our faith depends on maintaining a good memory constantly. Deuteronomy 8, the chapter we come to today, probably says this the clearest of any. Go ahead and open up there to Deuteronomy chapter 8. The book of Deuteronomy, as many of you know by now, is essentially a series of final sermons from Moses to the people of Israel. And technically, he's been preaching the same sermon since the beginning of chapter 5, which explains why he's basically had the same main point in every chapter, still preaching the same talk. Now, he's been given a new generation of Israelites a fresh retelling of his law, of God's law. And as he's begun doing so, he's been constantly stressing the need for obedience. He wants to, to motivate faithful, loving obedience to a faithful, loving God. Chapter 8 begins the same way. Look at verse 1. It says, The whole commandment that I command you today shall be, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. So, if they followed God's law, what would happen? They would live and be multiplied. And this partially implies that if they refused to follow God, they would very well have not lived. They would never have won any of the battles that were coming up soon. They would have been wiped off the face of the earth. But this is also looking further down the road. This is looking to the, the quality of their lives once they're settled in the land. Would they continue to experience God's blessings on their lives or not? 
Would they be able to live life to the fullest by following him to the fullest? Verse 2, Moses gives a second major command which undergirds the command to obey. He says, and you shall remember. And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, so if, if they were to follow the whole commandment, they needed to remember the whole way that God led them in the wilderness. This is the first of five times that Moses talks about remembering or not forgetting in chapter 8. But it's interesting what he wants them to remember, right? As they moved into the promised land, you'd think that they would want to quickly forget the desert. To, to block that dark chapter of their, that, their history out of their minds, out of their memories. If you think back to, to some of the hardest seasons in your life, how do you see them now? We don't tend to cherish memories of, of hard times, right? Of seasons of, of great need or intense pain or heartache or failure or loss or betrayal or depression. Even just long seasons of waiting. We don't like thinking about them. But there are usually two ways to view them in hindsight. The first is to view difficult seasons as a waste, right? which leads to regret or bitterness about them. Those were times, those were seasons when you just couldn't live up to your full potential in life. And so you wish they just never happened. They're a waste of time. The other way to view them is with an eye towards redemption. You believe that those seasons had a purpose, even if you don't know what that purpose is or was. It may be very hard to see, hard to believe, but we believe that God was doing some kind of work in our lives. This is true of Israel in their 40 years of wandering. Chris Wright explains it this way, that the most obvious evaluation of their wilderness period could be that it was a monumental waste of a golden opportunity because the generation that came out of Egypt failed to go up and take the land at that time. However, in retrospect, one can see that the ensuing years were not all wasted. As Moses looks back on that time, he discerns a purpose in having a generation wander about in the wilderness. God turned it into a learning experience that must never be forgotten. So what was it that, that Moses wanted them to keep remembering about the last 40 years? He said that the whole way in which God led them. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. Let me ask you this. Do you want to follow the Lord to the fullest in your life? Is that a desire of yours? Do you, do, you, do you have a desire to be more obedient, more faithful, more godly, more Christ-like? If so, God's word has a message for you today. There's something that you need. First, following the Lord to the fullest requires remembering his humbling guidance. Following the Lord to the fullest requires remembering his humbling guidance. 
The Lord had, had lovingly led his people through the wilderness for four decades now. Long time. He provided for their needs. He, he won battles for them. He showed them where to go and when to go. And, but, but why did he do that? I mean, if he just wanted to, to judge the previous generation and have them all die out before entering the land, then why not just kill them 40 years prior and get on with the show? Moses tells us why. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. They might humble you. So God led them in order to humble them. Clearly they, they needed humbling. Their, their pride and independence had led them into some pretty deep sin. And if they were to become a people who followed God faithfully, then they needed this massive attitude adjustment. This heart attitude needed to be changed. Humility was needed. But Moses also says that God was putting them to a test says that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now this test is not like the test that we would do in school, which you get pass or fail on. You have to pass in order to pass a class or a grade or to graduate one day. After all, if this was a pass or fail kind of test, Israel would most definitely have failed. They have been held back, not allowed to graduate to the promised land. Now, this was more like what we would see as a placement test, right? Something that just evaluates you, meant to reveal things about us. When I was preparing to apply to universities, I was looking at possibly going to some universities in the States, which meant that I needed to take the American SAT test. And after which I got a certain score that placed me in a certain tier of, of students. And this score was then handed off to all the universities I would apply to. So they would get to know me. Because so they, they wanted to know something about who I was as a student. God tested Israel to reveal who they were. To, to prove their character. To bring that to light. As the message puts it, so that he would know that what you were made of. And it's not like God didn't know that. Of course he did. But he wanted to reveal their hearts. In all likelihood, that was mostly for their own benefit. To know what was in their hearts. So he tested them. And it indeed was a, a humbling experience, as you see in verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger. And fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now this is interesting, because this reveals what God's motives were all along. And his motives were to lead them to himself. He allowed them to, to go through hard times. He let them go hungry with a purpose. And then he sent manna, a strange, unique food. He fed them with a purpose. God made them hungry, and then he fed them with food from heaven to teach them, to train them, so they would learn, so they know something. In many of today's superhero stories, the hero often has to go through some kind of, of hard season of life, often a training regimen when they're, when they're learning their powers for the first time, or they're trying to, to get back on the horse, to, get, to work their way back after a loss or a failure. 
And this training can include some really difficult things, right? Maybe like getting beaten up or <laughs> going through all this intense physical training or they maybe go hungry at times. And it's in those times they learn to, to find the inner strength to rise above their challenges. Israel was undergoing a strict training program of sorts in the wilderness. The difference is that it wasn't meant to make them turn inwards, but to God. George Atha says, Yahweh made Israel dependent on manna to make them dependent on him. And that lesson he wanted to teach them is spelled out there in verse 3's familiar words. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. On the one hand, this was clearly meant to teach them dependence. Right? So they would know him as their provider. To, that he gives them everything they need, their daily bread. On the other hand, what he wanted to teach them was way deeper than food. The New Living Translation gets at this when it says, He did it to teach you that people need more than bread for their life. Real life comes by feeding on every word of the Lord. Or as one scholar says, it was to teach them that full stomachs do not ensure life. Think about hunger. Hunger is one of the most basic human needs we have. Babies come out of the womb screaming to be fed. But Moses here makes the claim that, that God and his words were more basic to the Israelites' sur continuing survival and existence and flourishing than even food. It, it makes total sense this would be said here in the context of commanding obedience. That, that every word or everything that comes from the mouth of the Lord, it's not just provision. It includes his promises, his commands, his, his wisdom, his will, his word. What does this mean for us, though? It means, most basically, that we need to depend on God's word. We need to depend on it. It means your very sustenance in life depends on whether you are following his revealed will. So how do we do this? How do we live by God's words? Well, first, you must know his words. Right? That's pretty easy. You have, to, you have to know what he says, which comes through hearing and reading and studying and meditating on his word. It's, it's sadly this very first step where most Christians tend to struggle. So what might you need to do in order to make this more of a priority, to know his words? Because many of us are essentially starving to death. And we don't even know it. Next, you need to take his words to heart. You need to believe them, to trust them. Like eating food, you need to ingest the words and get them inside of you. Finally, you need to follow his words. And this means obeying what he commands, following what he says. It means shaping your life after what God says, following Jesus' example, really. The prophet Isaiah echoes the words of Deuteronomy 8 and Isaiah 55, which many of us may need to hear today. 
he says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? So how and what should we eat? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. There is possibly nothing more consistently humbling than hearing God's word. We need humbling, right? So we come to the word. There's nothing more consistently humbling than hearing God's word. But there's also nothing that we need more of in life than its sustenance and satisfaction. You may know that Jesus quoted these words too, right? When did he do that? His temptation. Back in chapter 6, we saw two of the passages that Jesus quoted during his temptation. Verse 3 here is the third one. Jesus had, had just finished fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, reminiscent of Israel's 40 years. Right? He must have been starving at this point. And right then is when the devil came and tempted him to feed himself. And he says, if you're the son of God, then command these loaves of, of lo these rocks become loaves of bread. You can feed yourself. It seems harmless enough, right? What's the matter with that? Well, we don't know exactly why, but there was a reason that Jesus was fasting. And if he gave in, he would have been going against his father's will. But also, notice that the devil was doing something very specific. Here he was casting doubt on a couple things. Casting doubt on God's goodness and on Jesus' identity. If you are the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, if God, if God is your Father, then why are you hungry? Why isn't God taking care of you? Why don't you do something about it? And to this, Jesus shot back with Scripture. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And with those words, Jesus did what Israel failed to do, just as he would do twice more. He depended fully on God and his word for what he most needed for his life. It's almost like at the same time as this temptation, God the Father was testing Jesus too to, to reveal what was in his heart. It's like, would he live by God's words and God's will? And the answer was yes, he would. Later in John 6, shortly after Jesus fed 5,000 people with a, a tiny amount of bread and fish, some people came up to him and they asked him to give another sign to prove he was who he said he was. Give us a sign like Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. To which Jesus replied, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Who's that? He's talking about himself. Notice the emphasis there on giving life. The bread that gives life. 
But the people promptly requested, well, sir, give us this bread all the time. <laughs> we want it all the time, always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, the only thing, the only thing that guarantees life, true life, life to the fullest, is Jesus, the bread of life. It's the only thing. That you might know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So I wonder, what are you depending on in your life for your satisfaction or fulfillment? What are you looking to? Yourself? Think you can do it yourself? To some other person? Maybe it's something that you can earn or buy or enjoy or eat even. Think about it. What are you looking to? Or are you looking to the sole provider, the one who humbles, and guides, and satisfies us? Remember him. Remember what he's done. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you. You. For another example of how amazing his provision had been for the people of Israel, look at verse 4. It says, Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. I make it a point to try to take care of my clothes so they last as long as possible. I'm sure many of you do the same. But if you, in my dresser, my closet at home, if you were to think, okay, what's lasted more than 10, 12, 15 years? I, I'd have guess I'd have one or two old t-shirts, <laughs> maybe one pair of pants, a pair of shoes that's old and ratty and uses work shoes now. That's it. Everything else has basically been replaced because stuff wears out. Right? So imagine living outside for 40 years and not having a single piece of clothing wear out. That's a miracle. And their feet didn't even blister from all that walking. And they, they were not wearing some special orthotic Air Jordans out there. <laughs> this was God, his doing. And if God cares about even the little things like this, shows how much he cares about his people, it can be humbling to admit that you can't provide for yourself or guide yourself, but that's a good place to be. It's good to be there because if you belong to God, it means he's the one that's looking out for you. Are you willing to be humbled to the dust if it means that God meets you in the dust? Are you? Because don't you see, even as he led his people through the desert and testing their metal, he was actively and graciously loving them. He's with them, revealing himself to them. Being humbled by the Lord was one of the best things that ever happened to them. Closely related to this was being disciplined. 
Look at verse 5. It says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Discipline is another thing that we tend to view negatively when in God's perspective it's a good thing. If you were told, tomorrow God is going to discipline you, you'd likely start dreading it. Oh no, what's he going to (laughs) do? But if God never disciplined you, just let you on your own, go your own way, do your own thing, that would mean he doesn't love you. The fact is, God disciplines those he loves. If we were left on our own, that would be a a terrible thing. Just like if I never disciplined my own children, I'd be setting them up to fail in life. Know then that in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Now, I know that you might find it difficult to know what is the Lord's discipline in my life, what is not. I do, but I doubt that matters if we just learn to trust that God is at work in every hardship. He's doing something. Trust that he's guiding you. Accept his humbling of you. And seize the opportunity to grow in your dependence on him. Remember what God's aiming to do in our lives. He's trying to guide us to himself. He's trying to show himself. And living under him is not all bad things either. There's a ton of good too. Consider what he did for Israel out of the, the sheer goodness of his heart. Okay, this was, this is, we're going to see this in verse 7 to 10. This is another reason that they should be eager to follow his ways. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Verse 7, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Here's what I think we should take away here. Following the Lord to the fullest requires remembering his amazing goodness. His amazing goodness. Following the Lord to the fullest fullest requires remembering his amazing goodness to us. As I said, verse 7, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Verse 9, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. Verse 10, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Now, coming out of an arid desert, this would have sounded glorious. A homeland with plentiful water sources, agriculture, produce, as well as abundant iron and copper to mine, to to, to build cities, or to outfit a military. But of course, the point was not that the land itself would bless them, but that God was blessing them. As Chris Wright points out, whatever lessons God may have taught through hunger in the wilderness, God's desire for people is not scarcity, but sufficiency. Sometimes, as believers, I think we can feel bogged down by all the things that we should be doing as good Christians. 
Okay, so gathering at church, serving, hospitality, evangelism, discipleship, prayer, study, and on the list goes on. And, and we lose sight of the very simple fact that God is good. God is good. And, and that alone should provide us with all the motivation we ever need to follow him faithfully. Do you believe that, that statement is there that God's desire for people is not scarcity but sufficiency? It's true. He wants to bless us so that we end up blessing his name. Verse 10 makes that really clear. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. So all the good things you read in verse 79, even ordinary, everyday stuff, were meant to lead to praise. Did you know that eating an orange or a piece of bacon is an opportunity to praise God? As you put your clothes on that keep you alive, even in minus 40, you can feel the goodness of God. You can bless his name as you take a bath. So you enjoy a clean glass of water. As you hug a loved one, you start your car, read a good book, thank him. He doesn't only bless us spiritually, as superior as those blessings may be. All his blessings come that we may praise. His, his daily goodness calls for daily worship. And if we're going to follow him, we have to remember this. We have to remember his amazing goodness and praise him for it. Do otherwise would just lead to losing our resolve, losing our heart. Got to keep praising. God was testing his people in the poverty of the desert. But really the, the prosperity of the promised land would be just as much a test for them. And up to this point, this chapter has described what the correct response to the test would be. To, to remember his goodness and remember his guidance to them. The second half, on the other hand, describes the wrong response to this test. For them and for us. And it points out one more key thing I think we need to be continually remembering. See, following the Lord to the fullest requires remembering our forgetful pride. We are often so forgetful precisely because we are so prideful. So following the Lord to the fullest requires remembering our forgetful pride. I'm saying we need to be constantly aware of our sinful tendencies and how not strong we are. Let's see how Moses warns, people, warns against people's prideful tendencies. Verse 11, he says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. So in other words, if you don't follow the Lord's ways, it's evidence that you've forgotten him. And we struggle to feel the weight of that. Have you ever bumped into someone from your past that you 
recognize and you know you should know, but for the life of you, you just can't place them or remember their name? How embarrassing is it when you have to ask them who they are? <laughs> it can be humiliating, right? I hope someone else comes along and introduces themselves to them so we can just ride on their coattails. <laughs> but we don't want them to know that we forgot them. It hurts our pride. But also, we know that, that being forgotten can be very painful, right? And so it exposes that we maybe we didn't care about them as much as they care about us. Now, why do we not feel as strongly about forgetting the Lord? And what pain is caused when we do? Even if it's only for a season or a day or a moment, forgetting hurts both him and us. Forgetfulness then leads to sin and pride, even more forgetfulness. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Skip down to verse 12. Lest when you have eaten and are full, and have built good houses and live in them. And when your, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You notice that little phrase in verse 14, then your heart be lifted up. That's pride. That's thinking even subconsciously, that, that you're, you're a pretty great person. That, that you've worked hard and, and earned a lot of the good things in your life. Listen, no one naturally thinks they're very prideful. And yet, almost everyone is. Or even if we admit that we're proud, we don't think it's that big of a deal that we are. God doesn't think that way. Pride is one of the roots of all other kinds of sin. Pride is rebellion. Pride sets ourselves up as rival gods to him. Makes us glory thieves. Many of us already live in a materially promised land. Many of our hearts have already been lifted up by that. It's very possible that your level of living in life will, your level of blessing will just keep going up over time. It's very possible. You may, if you're single, you may get married one day, have a house full of kids, you have lots of grandkids one day. You may graduate with honors, get some adulation at work, Nice promotion or raise. You may get a bigger house, a nicer car, fatter bank account, a nice comfy retirement. And on every step of the ladder, you will be tempted to lift up your heart. And in the process of doing that, we either minimize or just flat out ignore what God has done for us. Physically, we forget his provision, his good 
provision for us. Spiritually, we forget much worse. We forget his, his great salvation. Like the Israelites could have. It said, Then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and ter- terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. See, he was always out for their good in the end all along. But, but pride would cause them to forget these things, forget his goodness, forget how he saved them. And we know that in all things, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You know that pride will cause us to forget that. It will blind us to that truth. Pride will lead us to lose the wonder of Christ's death and resurrection little by little. We'll think that either we weren't that bad or that Christ's love wasn't that great. Pride will lead us to grow less and less thankful and more and more entitled. We won't notice God's grace as much as we notice our own greatness. And then when that happens, we become often more angry and bitter as the world gives us less of our due. But what we're, what we're really due is no less than hell. And what God has done for us is flat out astonishing. Pursuing after lost prideful rebels dying for us, crucifying our pride on Christ's back. Giving us the grace we need to humble ourselves now, only to then be exalted in the end. Some of you may need to be truly humbled by God for the first time today. You need to admit that you have tried to do life by yourself and for yourself. But you will never find true life there. It's only in Christ. So you may need to come today and and humble yourself. Lay your pride down and cry out to God to save you. Some of you here have wandered away from your faith and your trust in God for whatever reason. I believe that's when you have forgotten the Lord, and it is heartbreaking. You think that you don't need God, but He's really everything you'll ever need. If you return to Him, He promises to forgive. He's He's led you to that place of humility and surrender. And God opposes the proud gives grace to the humble. He gives more grace to the humble. And all of us need that reminder. We we need to lower our estimation of ourselves today. Not just so we feel worse about ourselves, but so we feel better about God and His grace. See yourself for who you are. Confess, repent, and find His grace again and again and again. And let's 
heed the warning that Moses gives us here. Verse 17, he says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Don't take credit for your life. Don't take the credit. Verse 18, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Oh, you think you did all of this by your own power? Where'd your power come from? Any power we have in life, any skills or abilities, any accomplishments, comes from God. It was God who prospered the Israelites to, to keep his promises. And he may do the same for you. He may prosper you. He may also take your prosperity away. Maybe the Lord has even kept you or will keep you from prosperity, from wealth, knowing that your heart will be led astray and lifted up by it. Ever thought of that? If so, it's a blessing. It's possible. And every single blessing you are given in life could be seen as a test from God. Will you praise Him? Will your gratitude grow? Or will your pride grow instead? Daniel Block does a great job of bringing this into today for us. He says, In our day, God's tests come in many forms. When all our needs are met, God is testing us. When we win a scholarship to a prestigious university, receive accolades for a beautiful painting or poem, are promoted in business, or gain a windfall fortune on the stock market. But this is also true of more mundane accomplishments. When we learn to read or ride a bicycle, master a new computer program, or strike a hole in one on the golf course, God is testing us. Will we give him praise for giving us the wits and the skills for these accomplishments? Our faith and faithfulness are not tested only when the Lord drives us to the end of ourselves. They are also tested when everything is going our way. Indeed, the more successful we are, the stiffer the test and the greater the reason to praise God and at the same time, the greater the danger of self-sufficiency. If we ignore that danger, our ingratitude easily blossoms into idolatry. As he ends here, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now notice a couple things there. Notice that idolatry is equated with disobeying God. It's all intertwined. And living life this way, being dependent on anything but God, leads to disaster. Uh, also notice here, Moses emphasizes obeying the voice of God because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. God has spoken Words have graciously come from his mouth. Now the choice is ours. Will we 
listen? And will we live by what we hear? The first step towards humility is to, to own up to our own pride. So you got to do first. I need to, to say today again, I am proud. And I need the grace of Jesus in my life more than I need anything else. You do too. Therefore, let anyone who thinks they stand take heed lest they fall. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a scary prayer to pray, but I pray today that you would humble us. Because we need it. You know our hearts. You see what's in them. You know what needs to be revealed. So would you do that in us now? May we humble ourselves and run to you, finding your grace again this morning and finding everything we need in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.